Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with the fire. Winter's Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, Game of Thrones Clatcher's Comments episode. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And we are doing comments based off episode four, The Spoils of War. This is a special week. We're doing three podcasts this week. Uh, Yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to maintain that with any consistency. I don't mean to get you guys excited. We just had so much material to cover this week. By the time we got through our deep dive podcast, we realized we didn't have time for Clatcher's comments. Some of these comments that we have received are from before the episode and they don't really fit anymore. But we want to give you a shout out. We did read your comments. Christina probably did write back to you. Hopefully I did. So we hear you. Keep those coming. We love them. In addition, as soon as we're done reviewing the comments, we're going to have a couple of theories on dreams, prophecies, and visions. This is a topic we explored back in the season six bonus episode. We went through all the different types of visions and prophecies from the books because a lot of this really didn't make its way so much into the TV show, but I see it starting to come out and there's a few key ones that will definitely be players, but that does involve a little bit of spoiler type stuff, so we'll save it for the end. As you guys already know, if you listen to our full review, we had made the mistake of recording the episode Monday night when the polls weren't completed. We thought that would be fine because we, we saw... That the winner the was... trend. Yeah. And then it, it flipped on itself. So sorry about that. We won't do that again. <laughs> Thank you so much for voting. Okay, Jason, let's get into the comments and open up with the Theon topic. We got a few people who wrote in about this. Luke says, I really think that Theon is going to become a much larger part of the story in the final two seasons. I know we cannot rely on narrative logic too much with Gurm, but I do not think we would have seen so much of him and watched him suffer through so much only to have him die a pointless death. Also, he is a younger brother and a prince. Now, that's a really key point that I didn't think about. If you go back to the Valonqar prophecy of who might be responsible for Cersei's death, we had run through a whole host of possibilities. (laughs) Anything from the unrelated possibility of Arya killing her with somebody else's face... (laughs) Maybe probably little fingers over to the Valonqar prophecy where it could be either Tyrion or Jaime. And there were such popular interpretations as it could just be a younger brother in general, like the Hound, or here it could be Theon. I like where Luke's coming from with this because you're right. We have put a lot of time into Theon. And if you follow the normal tropes of TV shows, when that much time is given to a character, they're normally not just cut off at the head. So I agree with you on that, but also we have to remain aware that this is Game of Thrones. So that trope doesn't work necessarily. If they give us a lot of time in a character and make us value them, that doesn't mean they're going to survive. But I think in this case, Theon's storyline doesn't stop here. It's either he does something and gets killed, or he does something and does the killing. I think he's right about that. I agree, but I think he's probably going to go out in a bit of a blaze of glory, saving somebody else. We're not going to get a full and complete redemption arc for him because we're seeing that with too many other characters. 
right? You have a total turnaround for the Hound. You have possibly this redemption arc for Jamie. I think Theon possibly does just get the shit end of the stick most of the story and then has a moment where he's able to step up and be brave, perhaps to save his sister Yara. Yeah, it may be that, and this is a total guess, Danny decides to go north, but gives Theon some soldiers and has Theon lead the cause to get his sister back. Pure guess, though. I don't even feel confident about that one. <laughs> Eric also wrote in to say this was a bit more relevant to episode two, but it keeps coming up, so he wants to offer his opinion. He watched episode two at a friend's house, and when Theon had his freakout moment and jumped overboard, his friend and he pretty much said the same thing. His PTSD got in the way, and that sucks, but it makes sense, and we moved on. But it wasn't until later that he started thinking more in depth about Theon's character. He says Theon has suffered more than anyone else in this series, with Sansa as a very close second. And during the battle scene we've been talking about, which was on the ship when Euron attacked the men, they were performing the exact actions Theon endured. When Euron first challenges Theon, his instinct is to step up confidently. Only when he starts seeing mutilation does he lose his grip on Theon and slip back into Reek. My point here is to argue against the idea that Theon is some irredeemable coward. After all, we don't all hate the Hound for running at the Battle of Blackwater. Good point. Allegedly, fans say they're done with him now, but how quickly they forget Sansa might still be with Ramsay if he hadn't saved her. He was at his darkest point, about as reek as he could be, and yet he not only found it in himself to save her, he was also willing to give himself back to Ramsay, knowing what he might have to go through so Sansa would have a chance to survive. The way I see it, by the end of the story, Theon will earn more redemption by dying to save someone important or accomplishing an important task. Okay, so he agrees with Luke and agrees with us. And he does make a valid point. And Christina, we all know this. We won't get into it again. <laughs> Your background is art therapy and you deal with PTSD often. Yes. So yes, that scene on the ship for sure would conjure up some PTSD moments. I mean, what he's seeing going on. Yeah, we talked about the triggers starting even earlier than that, right? There were subtle ones and they kind of built up layer upon layer when he was below decks first with Yara and Alaria. Right. First, I think the sexual nature of what was happening there put him a bit on edge. Then Alaria treating him like the servant boy as Ramsey used to do started making him slip back into that mindset. Then the fear of a battle, which is going to put anybody into a fight or flight response. And finally, as Eric mentions, the exact nature of what's going on to these people, them literally being ripped apart, blood everywhere, that is the ultimate trigger into maybe a borderline flashback. And so it's more than just him fleeing in the moment. He is going through the motions of experiencing PTSD. And we've seen this show do a really good job approaching that with different characters, such as when the Hound was at the Battle of Blackwater and he was seeing the fire and he ran from that. But nobody has been more traumatized than Theon. And I wrote back to Eric to tell him that I agree. I don't hate or dismiss Theon's character. I think it's very interesting. And the issue is, where do we go now with him? I think it's difficult to pull off the redemption arc because you walk a fine line with, is it unrealistically heroic or too quick of a turnaround? Say, if we saw him go to King's Landing and try to rescue Yara, it wouldn't just happen like that. It's going to take some time for him to get this back, a more realistic, slow climb back to humanity. And I don't think we have enough time on the show to do that justice. So I think that you're all correct. Bottom line, there's going to be a scene, an action that he does that will prove his worth. And then unfortunately, he'll probably die. 
So that's a wrap on Theon. Moving on to Littlefinger. And we could talk all day about him, what's behind his motivations, what's going on with him at Winterfell. We did discuss this on the full review podcast last time. But Emily wrote in to reinforce that point we had talked about. Didn't he give the knife to Bran before Arya got there? So she probably wasn't tied into that. But there was possibly something else going on between Littlefinger and Arya. Emily thought when he saw her sparring with Brienne that it seemed as though his jaw tensed. There was something more going on there. And it's since been mentioned that potentially Littlefinger recognized her from her time at Harrenhal. I didn't even think about that. When she was disguised as a serving girl, although not very well, if you had known Arya, it still looked like her. It's just she was beneath Tywin's notice, so it didn't really matter. But Littlefinger was there too. And Entertainment Weekly wrote an article about this where they said, you remember the scene. Littlefinger was visiting Lord Tywin at Harrenhal while Arya was working as the servant girl. She nervously spills some wine, and Littlefinger glances at the Stark fugitive curiously. He had met her back in season one, though didn't pay her much attention. It was unclear if he recognized her in the moment or not, but Gillen has his own thoughts about that. Yes, I did recognize her, I just didn't say anything or do anything about it. Perhaps... If he left things alone, she might have ended up killing Tywin, which would then create more power-grabbing opportunities for himself. So when they were back at Winterfell now in the last episode, could that look potentially have been him thinking about seeing her at Harrenhal and all of the things she's been able to do, her abilities, even as a young child? That sounds good. I mean, we've been discussing and could not surmise our own theory on what that theme could look except for bad. So, <laughs> yeah. I love that. This puts sort of something behind it and gives him a reason to take her measure and see her as someone intimidating that he doesn't know how to move that chess piece around the board now. There was also a couple of comments about the Valyrian steel dagger in particular, which I love because we weren't quite sure how this was coming together either. Now, Carrie brought up the point we've been making a lot, which is that dragon glass is only effective against the whites. It takes Valyrian steel, or at least it seems, to kill a white walker. We don't know if anything else will do it, but definitely Valyrian steel does. So we've been spending a lot of time throughout the end of last season and this, keeping track of where all the Valyrian steel blades are in the kingdom, who has them, what's going to happen to them. And now Arya's got one. So Carrie says maybe Bran gave it to Arya, knowing she would need it in the fight against the White Walkers because he got a vision of that. And now, given that Bran has seen Arya's fighting skills, it would make sense that she would need it in the wars to come. So you foresee her fighting the White Walkers? That was an email from Carrie saying she might need it to fight the White Walkers, and Bran had seen that in a vision. I'm not looking forward to that day when (laughs) all of our major characters are fighting these evil evil men. I remember how I felt the first time Jon Snow fought the White Walkers. Mm. I was on pins and needles. I was like, oh my god, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. They're going to kill another one of our loved characters. And when this happens and we have all these people that we love fighting these White Walkers, I don't think I'll be able to sit. I think I'll be standing. Oh, of course. Now, there's some people I don't see being in those frontline battles. I see the Wildlings, Tormund, the Hound and the Brotherhood, Jon Snow, they're all definitely going to be up there fighting. But characters like Arya, I still think she's going to be a bit in the background. I think she is going to continue with this list and start singularly taking out important people while we gear up for this main battle. Can she put on a walker face? To just scare Cersei to death, maybe? No, like to like... (laughs) 
You know how in Walking Dead, you cover yourself in the blood and you can walk oh, with to them. Blend. So I'm saying like blend and be the assassin. <gasps> Ooh, that's kind of cool. Just the Night King would know because he can sense everything. But Yeah, now we had said a big army against the whites doesn't make sense. That's what they're gearing up for now. But unless you can take all of them out in one go, they keep killing you. They keep reanimating more dead to fight on their side. We think ultimately they're going to come to that realization that they have to go after the main group of White Walkers and take them out. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully that means the Risen Dead army just goes back to being dead. So I think you're going to see a couple of key players with those Valyrian steel swords fighting against the leading class of White Walkers, the most important of which being the Night King. Mm. So will it be Danny, John, Arya that fights him? I'm not sure. I'm still leaning towards John. But Arya might have a role to play in that, I think, much later on, though, in our last season. I just got a thought and a feeling. Jon Snow is going to be some kind of badass. He's going to have special powers, but you know what? He's going to be the one that dies winning the battle. No. I'll change my mind next week, but I this is what I'm going with. <laughs> I hate that theory. I think for as much power as you see Danny gaining right now, mm -hmm. she is going to be the one that makes it almost all the way to the end but her and the dragon gets taken out. And it's John that survives, but John maybe still does die one more time, like you said. It's just he gets brought back from Beric and Thoros. Okay, F this. I think John, John is the long man running here. Neither of them die. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> oh, that's not T.O.T., Jason. <laughs> well, coming back to the dagger for a minute, we had also wondered at the origins of the dagger. How does this trace back? Who did it belong to? We got a really great email from Dana on that with a bullet point list. She says, here's her theory on how Littlefinger came to have it in his possession. Number one, the dagger belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen, which we had discussed that possibility last time. Reason being, he liked to ornament his weapons and armor with rubies, and there's a red stone on the dagger that could be a ruby. Now, I saw it was ornamented, but I didn't even notice the stone. What a great catch. That is how yeah. you could link it better to him. Number two, Robert Baratheon took the dagger from Rhaegar's body after the Battle of the Trident. That's the link I was missing. How did it then get from a Targaryen, or more specifically Rhaegar, over to Littlefinger? And Robert taking it while he was fighting him makes total sense. He defeated him at the Ruby Ford. So he definitely would have taken his spoils of war. He brings it into his possession. It remains in his possession for a while until he starts getting a little bit desensitized perhaps, just leaving it with the rest of his, his things, his swords, who knows. And this is when, number four, Joffrey finds it, takes it for himself, and hires the assassin to kill Bran. So that still fits in with book and TV. It would connect it that Joffrey still did the deed. She says after overhearing his father discussing the fact that lame animals are usually put down and the same consideration is not shown to human beings. So trying to prove himself to his father... We had thought that in the beginning, or maybe somebody was even whispering in his ear back then to get this started. Number four, the dagger then comes into Catelyn Stark's possession after Summer thwarts the assassin. Catelyn takes it with her to King's Landing and gives it to Ned Stark. We see all of this on the show, where it's on Ned's desk while he's Hand of the King, and Littlefinger is sort of looking at it, playing with it. Very clear he's going to go after it. So number six, Ned is betrayed and executed, and Littlefinger goes and gets the dagger back. And that's where we are now. I love it. Connects all the dots. Dana, this is perfect. And I now totally subscribe to this being the course of the cat's paw dagger. 
So thank you everyone for your thoughts about Arya, Littlefinger, and the Valyrian Steel Dagger. Now let's talk about Bran. We had two people write in to bring up a thought that we had discussed a while ago, but we haven't come back to it. Lewis said his main prediction for Bran is he will eventually warg into the Mad King in the past, showing him the White Walkers. This would explain why the Mad King suddenly went nuts and started shouting, burn them all. Bran is going to be the reason why this all started in the first place. Bran equals worst time traveler ever. (laughs) We had definitely agreed with that when we started seeing the flashbacks to the Mad King on the show, that either Bran was seeing them during those visions, seeing the White Walkers and saying something like that and the Mad King heard him, or Bran is somehow directly giving the Mad King visions. Either way, the burn them all line comes out and alters the course of history, kind of the way it did with Hodor. I like that. Do you think they'll show that? Yeah, I think why else go back to that specific vision of the Mad King, who we haven't seen a lot of on TV, even though they've talked about him, unless it's going to play in later. And Matt agrees that this is the cause for the Mad King going mad, and it will affect him like it did with Hodor. So yes, mirroring those thoughts. And this is all due to the fact that the OG Three-Eyed Raven didn't have time to really help Bran with his powers. He kind of threw him to the wolves. And Bran's bound to make these mistakes. He thought he was going to have a longer sequence to go through this with him. We had a question about that as well, if that's actually his name or was his name the Three-Eyed Raven. In real life, his name was Brynden Rivers. Once he started to come up in the world, people called him Blood Raven. But yeah, when he started to become one with the tree, people actually did call him the Three-Eyed Raven. We got a quick theory about Cersei from Daniel, who says he thinks she is actually going to have relations with Euron, become pregnant by him, and this is what makes Jaime go against her, eventually killing her and deciding to join the cause of right and head north to fight the White Walkers. I think that would be an interesting twist. The only reason I'm going to have to disagree here is I think Cersei does not want to be with Euron and she's going to put him off as long as possible. We see her telling him, yeah, I'll marry you when the war is won. So I don't think it's likely they sleep together before that point. What if she really needs him to get Jamie back so she sleeps with Uh, him to kind of sway him to do that? Yeah, that could be. I could see that. What else is she going to do to convince him? There's definitely going to be some more shit going down, though, where Cersei continues along this crazy path, and Jamie realizes she's gone off the deep end. And I don't, I don't Jamie's, think he... But Jamie's captured now, so he's not going to see any of that. Well, who knows? Yeah. Who knows where he goes? If this is his turn over to the side of right, I don't think that can happen without a showdown at some point between him and Cersei. Maybe they just take him back to Dragonstone and there still is a point where they have to fight Cersei and they come face to face. And finally, we got two emails about the John Danny situation and they're sort of on opposite sides of the fence. The wall. (laughs) Yes, Philip wrote in to say he was re-watching prior episodes and it gave him a thought in season four when Mance Raider refuses to bend the knee, even when Stannis tells John to get him to do it. John's speech to Mance about bending the knee sounds as familiar as Tyrion pleading to John to just do it. Bend the knee to Danny, that is. I think John will look back on how Mance handled this situation and possibly see that by refusing, he could be like Mance and die respected, but not obtain the goal at hand, defeating the dead. So that would mean John continues to not let go of this, his pride, his respect for his people, and potentially even dies for it. Camille gives thoughts on the opposite point, citing how this week... Danny actively sought John's advice after blowing off Tyrion, and John seemed to calm her down. 
He advised that she not burn down King's Landing, so she attacked the Lannister army instead with no civilian casualties. What if she recognizes that Jon is the perfect ice to her fire? While she is ready to go all bloody and angry, he keeps a level head, is not prideful, and reluctantly leads his people not because he wants to, but because he's best suited. With that in mind, if they get together or get married, the North would have a leader they could accept, and Danny would still be the queen of the Seven Kingdoms, since Jon would really only step in when she's about to go off the deep end. So in that scenario, they rule side by side. Why is she so hell-bent on this bending the knee? I think she's definitely intimidated yeah. by him. And she didn't come over here to rule a kingdom divided to, to get six of the areas. She came to get all seven kingdoms and rule over them all. But she cites John's pride, which I don't even think most of this in this situation is about his pride. It's about his people and what he thinks is best for them. She is really the one being a little prideful here. And we kind of thought we saw that in the battle as well when she didn't turn back, even though it had been pretty much won. I had an idea for the next episode, but it's based off the trailer. So I won't say it. Okay. Because not everyone wants those kinds of spoilers. We're going to get into that section in a minute. Philip also says, P.S. To add to your four jobs each, can you please invent an app that allows all these GOT names to get past spell check on our devices? Hey, I feel you, man. All I do is I yell to Christina, hey, how do you spell Daenerys? <laughs> well, but he's right. Everything comes up red on your Word doc yeah. because they don't recognize any of the names. Also need to point out, we got in a write-in about our mispronunciation of one of the character names. I say this because I'm going to try to make the attempt to change. It has now been seven years of watching the show and reading the books. And I think what this comes from is I was an audiobook listener first. And those of you who have listened will know for as amazing as Roy Detrice is, he has gone through several different pronunciations of some of the characters' names, quite a few of which were not the way George R.R. R. Martin or HBO intended the pronunciations to be. Matter of fact, he switched during the book series on some of them. Like he used to call Brienne Brian oh, early weird. on and then switched to calling her Brienne later. And anyways, I got Varys stuck in my head for a super long time. I say Varys. Instead of Varys. So I'm going to try to switch to Varys, but I might still wind up going back and forth a little. I'm sorry about that. I think for the most part, we really make a concerted effort to pronounce all the millions of names correctly and do our research, but we'll see how that goes. We have a few Twitter mentions. There was so many, and we can't read them all out here, so we're just going to choose a few of them at random. So many good ones. At Sith Lord Caruso wrote to us and said, at CKC Podcast, Go back and watch the episode Hound vs. Brienne. Arya let him live and he begged for death. He's forever off her list. Oh, Remember, we were discussing, so. we were like, is, she, is he off the list? What if she sees that he's still alive? I'm on that train of thought because that's the way I wanted to go. But just trying to dissect it, I wrote back to him saying, we were thinking that too, but wondering if she walked away because she felt he was dying anyways. Meaning, like, I'll let him suffer? Yeah, my interpretation of that is he was asking for mercy and she wouldn't give it to him because she thought he deserved to suffer still for what he'd been through. I mean, the merciful thing would have been to kill him or to stay and try to help him. By leaving, she has kind of just said, you don't matter to me at all anymore. So you don't matter to me at all would also probably mean he's off the list. She doesn't care enough to get revenge. But I don't know that she made any peace with that situation. If they do meet, maybe they speak at first, and she sees that he is a changed man. 
Yeah, I, I really hope that happens. He also wrote, what if the hound died, was resurrected by the Lord of Light after Dondarrion found him? They didn't show that, but that would explain his ability to read the fire. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. We saw that he was kind of on the brink of death. It seemed like he would die eventually the way he was left. So there could have been another force responsible for healing him. But we did see that scene last season where it seemed like he was meeting them for the first time. Unless they healed him and left him and he never actually met. I don't know. That'd be kind of weird. Ryan wrote to us on Twitter saying, Dickon proved to be a skilled and noble fighter. I predict that Sam will pass on Heartsbane to Dickon to fight against the White Walkers. That would be cool. I really like that. A lot of people are taking out of the last episode that Dickon has a bigger part to play because we were seeing more dialogue between him, Bronn, and Jamie. I don't know how he links back up with Sam for Sam to give him that sword or if Sam still has any lingering hostility over the issues with his father. If Randall's still alive, that might not be possible. I think maybe if Randall does die at some point, we could see that reunion. We had many other Clatchers that had similar theories about Theon, Dickon, the Mad King. So thank you everyone for being a part of the crew and joining in the conversation. The last segment is where we want to talk a little more about prophecies, but does contain some spoilers. So if you're wary of that, we will see you next time. For everyone that's still here, if you have been listening to us for longer than this season, you will know we have gone into this a lot with the prophecies. But when we first started out, it was really hard to figure out how these might tie in. As we get further and further along, closer to the end game, some of them are seeming to make a little more sense. Now, everyone from the people in book universe, the Maesters, to George R.R. Martin, cautions us against trying to interpret these prophecies. That it's a slippery slope, and you might think you understand them, but they're riddles. They can be misread, misinterpreted. We've seen that with Melisandre. How many times she's been wrong about the prince that was promised. And she is a professional, people. (laughs) Yeah, but we're going to go ahead and throw caution to the wind and do it anyway, because I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the book, and I wish that more of it had made it into the TV show. The warging that the Stark children do, their wolf dreams, the visions from other random characters. What made me think of this was the battle we saw in the last episode, the loot train battle. It brought me back to two separate prophecies. One of them was a dream Tyrion had in the books. And this could foreshadow events in the future, I'm warning you right now. That night, Tyrion Lannister dreamt of a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it all, dealing death with an axe as big as he was as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. In the dream, he had two heads. His father led the enemy, so he slew him once again. Then he killed his brother, Jamie, hacking at his face until it was a red ruin, laughing every time he struck a blow. Only when the fight was finished did he realize his second head was weeping. Second head? In the dream, he had two heads. Oh. And so I feel like that's a metaphor for him having two minds when it comes to Jamie. Oh, yeah, for sure. One that sees him as the enemy. He's on the opposite side of the battle now. He's fighting for Cersei, so he's an enemy. But in the other one, it's still his brother that he loves, and he doesn't want to have to go against him. And I think we saw all of those emotions mirrored within this battle while Tyrion was looking out at him. Definitely. This is quite a predicament he's in, and I think he's going to be the middleman between Danny and Jaime. And I'm hoping that he's the one that gets Jamie on the good guy's side. Remember, the last time they were together, Jamie let him leave the castle. Yeah, and I had mentioned this back then. They parted on much better terms on the TV show 
when he released him there in the books, they were really angry with each other. And they kind of both a little wanted to kill each other when he set him free because Tyrion told him that he killed Joffrey, even though that wasn't true. So I have more hope for the TV show. Maybe this was a red herring the book was going off on. And so they were leading you to believe Tyrion might kill Jaime someday. How would they do this scene without it looking weird? Two heads? Yeah, well, I don't think they could do it literally, but, you know, does it foreshadow the death at his hands? I hope not. The other prophecy this battle made me think of was the Dothraki one about the stallion who mounts the world. And you did hear about this on the show. That one goes like this. As swift as the wind he rides and behind him his calisar covers the earth. Men without number, with our axe shining in their hands like blades of razor grass. Fierce as a storm this prince will be. His enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and men will fear his name. The prince is riding, and he shall be the stallion who mounts the world. Now, in books and TV show, the Tithraki thought this was going to be Danny's child, who ended up dying. But a lot of people said it could be her, the way that the prince that was promised, the prophecy is not entirely male. Mm -hmm. Could it be the same here? And so she is both the stallion and the prince. And the reason I say this, she was riding with her calisar behind her, covering the earth, their arax shining. She was dealing death. It sounds a little bit like that. So this comes back to people are generally split into two camps on the prince that was promised. It's either John or Danny. And if you believe Melisandre, maybe it's both. It could be both. If it means prince or princess, it could also mean prince and princess. Oh, that's a good point. One of each. Or maybe three. The dragon has three heads and three riders. Maybe there's three people of the prophecy. Rhaegar certainly seemed to think so. When Rhaegar was alive, he talked about this a lot. First, he thought the prophecy was about himself. Then he thought it was about his son, Aegon, that he had with Elia. And when he was born, she asked him if he was going to make a song for the child. And he said, he has a song. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. But there must be one more. The dragon has three heads. So at that time in the books, people thought it was going to be Aegon, Danny, and then maybe later John. But there is no such Aegon in the TV show. So we're back to John, Danny, and who else? <laughs> Let's play a quick game. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a f- different variations. I just thought of this, so it might suck. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to give you three names. Only two can survive. Okay. John, Danny, Bran. John and Danny. Starting off easy for you. Bran, Arya, and Tyrion. Bran and Tyrion. Whoa. If Arya's main point is a revenge list, that takes her off the endgame. And Tyrion is hanging on by a thread lately, I gotta tell you. As much as I love him, he has to become important to the central plot again. Jamie, Cersei, Tyrion. Oh, right off the bat, I would love to say Jamie and Tyrion. Get Cersei out of there. Jorah, Davos, Sam. Oh dear, you've just given me three of my soft spot characters. Oh, well, I'd love to say Jorah and Davos, but I think Sam definitely makes it to the end. So I'm going to say Davos and Sam. Okay, last one. Mm -hmm. Davos, Bronn, Brienne. Oh, Davos and Brienne. I'm surprised Bronn didn't die in this episode. Those are tough, though. Yeah, but Bronn's so cool. He is, <laughs> um, but, you know, he sort of had his moment here, so I thought that would be a fitting end for him to go out that way. 
No, I want to see him go out with him closing the gates to his own castle. <laughs> well, at this point, you know they're not all making it. So it's almost like where is the best moment for yeah. their best death, the way Lady Olena had. And this was the best moment for Braun. I'm cheering on a bad guy who murders people. <laughs> Let's come back to prophecy for a minute. So we know a lot about the prince that's promised. From the books, they said... There will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword. That sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azora High come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. And here were the things about the prince. Supposedly, he was going to be born again when the red star bleeds, the darkness gathers, and he will be born amidst smoke and salt. Oh. Now, we're kind of using this interchangeably with Azora High. There's been a lot of questions about are they the same thing. I think they definitely will be on the TV show. The Prince That Was Promised is a story that's been told throughout this world in different places, and they all give it a different name. So this story called him Azora High. We talked about other stories that called the prince something else. But I think basically you can think about this prince as the same person. Thoro said the champion would be reborn to wake dragons from stone and reforge the great sword Lightbringer. Ooh. And we talked about this weapon, a terrible weapon that was forged with a loving wife's heart where he had to sacrifice her in order to do that. So we thought about a lot of different ways, Jamie perhaps having to kill Cersei to get Lightbringer. Maybe he eventually passes that on to John, and John has to fight with it in the battle. Some people thought that Lightbringer is already in the hands of Beric. Yep, definitely. Um, a lot of people think the prince is going to be Danny, but if she is also the one that's going to wield Lightbringer, curious that we never see her with a sword, how would she get it? True. So I think there has to be at least two people playing into this. But coming back to John, we got another great dream in the books that was prophetic. John has a dream that he's standing atop the wall fighting his foemen. And he's armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. Armored in black ice. A lot of I people have talked about, could that mean dragon glass? I, I mean, dig that. That would be very cool. But we also spoke about how brittle dragon glass can be. Yeah, so that's hard because it could probably be pierced easily, and yet it's kind of defensive against the whites. Maybe it's just decorative on his whole... Could he tip the armor with it the way they kind of ornamented their blades? Could it be on his armor somewhere? So he's like, he's on fleek Yeah, with his armor. Well, other people said more negatively, could black ice be him becoming a walker? No. I know. We're back to that. Well, remember, we talked about the fact that, in essence, he is a walking dead. Yeah. He's a, he's a fire white, risen by yeah. fire instead of an ice white. But if he comes to represent the union of both, that's going to have to come forth with him in some way. So that's John. And Danny has a lot of prophecies of her own, but they're a little bit more muddled. Like I said, she could fit into the prince prophecy. Definitely, if you listen to Thoros, waking dragons from stone... But a lot of what she got throughout the books was just people warning her of things. Like, these are the things you have to beware of. So Quaith tells her to beware the glass candles are burning. That's a reference I know you don't understand about Old Town. Um, the pale mare, which we talked about, was that sickness that swept through Marine. She also says the kraken and dark flame. Mm-hmm. Mm 
Lion and Griffin, The Sun, Sun, and the Mummer's Dragon. Trust none of them. Beware the perfumed Seneschal, which a lot of people think is Varys. Oh, there you go. Okay, so you got Kraken, which is Euron, the Lion, which are the Lannisters, the perfumed Seneschal would be Varys. There's a lot of warnings that could come back around for her. And we have a thought on Euron, which I'll tell you in a second. But also the more classic one that we heard in the House of the Undying, where they told her about the three fires she must light. Mm-hmm. One for life, one for death, one to love. Three mounts she must ride. One to bed, one to dread, one to love. And three treasons that she'll know. One for blood, one's for gold, and one's for love. Which is very ambiguous. All throughout the story, we thought that we nailed those three. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, wait, no, it wasn't that person. It was this person. So I think it's way too difficult to read who that's going to be. But the theme of three does keep coming up over and over with her again, reinforcing that idea of how it's going to play out with the dragons and maybe the bigger end game that there are three people essential to this prophecy. I dig it. Kind of off topic, but I was thinking about this since we were just talking about Jon Snow being a walking dead. Mm. Do you think that the Night King has green sight? Oh, yeah. Right? I definitely think he does. Because the way he looked at Jon Snow after that battle was, first of all, pimp. Because he just raised (laughs) his hands and all the dead arose. But the way he looked at him was kind of, we were saying way back then, what does he see in him? Does he see power? Yeah. Maybe he just sees what Jon Snow is about to go through because he has green sight. Yeah, and is that his own green sight or the connection he's tapping into now that he's linked to Bran? Like, has he had this all along or did it only come from marking Bran? No, he's had it. That's why he always knew when Bran was there. Yeah, that could be. Green sight is a power that derives from the children of the forest, right? Kind of, yes. I mean, it's not exclusive to them. People in the north have had green sight or warging capabilities, um, but it's definitely kind of an old god thing that was around long beforehand. So um, I think that's a definite possibility. And that would harken back to your whole thing about your whole theory about the White Walkers are the good guys, the dragons are the bad guys that that wreak hell and havoc onto the world and they're fighting the bad, which is the dragons. Yeah. And they have green sight, so they knew the dragons were born, they knew what they're about to do in the future and they need to stop it. Yeah, and so if the ice is the weapon to defeat the fire, ideally, though, you would have that balance in someone. Mm -hmm. So people said in John because of his lineage, but maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe he has to get to that point where things happen. He makes sacrifices to get light bringer. He is somehow the living embodiment of fire and ice, not just in his lineage being a Stark and a Targaryen. That seems a little easy. There was another vision that Danny saw in the House of the Undying of a blue-eyed king who casts no shadow and raises a red sword in his hand. Now, way back when, people thought this was Stannis because Stannis had blue eyes. He casts no shadow since Melisandre had taken his shadow to birth shadow babies. Right and had a sword that kind of flamed red. But if you think about this now, if Jon dies again, has a a little bit of this left in him, so he's now (sighs) blue-eyed, and raising the red sword of Lightbringer in his hand. So he is that both now, the living embodiment of of fire and ice. Or maybe he makes contact lenses with dragon glass, (laughs) and he has blue eyes. (laughs) Stupid. Uh. Oh, 
There's so much. There's so many things, and that's why you could go round and round with these prophecies forever, but these episodes have started to get me thinking about that again because I see little pieces floating around. I can't quite figure out how they're going to come together in the end, but it's becoming more relevant. Magic prophecies are going to start to work their way into the TV show a little where Game of Thrones has been wary of that before, and I think the results could be really interesting. One more for you, okay? And this could be big time spoiler. There was a man named Makoro in the books who was another red priest that traveled with Tyrion for a bit and kind of gave him some truth. Things like dragons, old and young, true and false, bright and dark, and you, a small man with a big shadow, snarling in the midst of them all. So there's a lot of people, the old, you know, like the old dragon could have been Aemon because he was a Targaryen, the young one, Danny. Um... So that was kind of a cool one. But more importantly, Tyrion then asks him, have you seen the others in your fires? And Makoro says, only their shadows, one most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. Who's that? Euron Greyjoy. Oh, oh, I was trying to picture someone with one eye. Well, he has one eye with the eye patch on in the books. Okay. We talked about that. Um... The Ten Arms, because he's the Kraken. He's on the Kraken ship, sailing on a sea of blood. Oh, man. Um, but that would mean Euron gets turned eventually, which that, I could see. Yeah. That guy, I fear him most of all, out of all the bad guys we've had. We've had more cynical bad guys. We've had Ramsey. He was one of the scariest, in my opinions. Yeah, he was scary because of how twisted he was. Insane. But he wasn't skilled. He was skilled at killing and torturing. Not like Euron. That's pretty scary. Euron is not as scary to me as he was in the books, and that's why it's difficult for me to get on board. For you, I could see that. Yeah. So um, you're better than me? No. I just <laughs> If you would have read about him, you'd been like, oh, yeah, all right. right. It's kind of okay. like what happened with the Sand Snakes. You didn't have much of a comparison, so they weren't that bad to you. We could go on and on about this stuff. If you are interested in hearing more about dreams and prophecies, go check out that other podcast we had. Or, coincidentally, I just saw today that History of Westeros dropped a new trivia podcast on prophecies and stuff like that. So that's another really cool one that you can go take a look at. Sweet. So that ends this week of podcasts. Busy GOT week. We had a lot to talk about, and I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. Yeah. We are going to try to bring you another Instacast next week. Yeah, it would just be two casts for next week, the instant and the full review. I think we're definitely going to do one for the season finale. Of course. We have to do instant. We're going to have so many thoughts about that. So these next two, we'll, we'll kind of do what we can with, but we'll for sure have both on the season finale as well as probably a bonus cast after all of that. Absolutely. Then we'll have our Mr. Robots. Yeah, so plenty of fun stuff. Some other things that we're not going to share yet because it's still in the works, but it could be really cool upcoming podcasts for you from CKC. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.